The opinions expressed are those of the show hosts and may not necessarily be of any company in which the show hosts may represent. Welcome to Podcast 360, everybody. Yes, this is a tech podcast. No, I have not released one in a very long time. In fact, the last technology podcast was January of this year. To be frank, the security box has been taking off well. I know that we have done a lot of security talk on this podcast. And there are webinars that I have been attending that are definitely of interest. And... I think there's still room for this podcast. Now, on this podcast, we're going to go back to, I believe, was a 2019 webinar with John Clay over at Trend Micro, and he talked about an anatomy of an attack. Now, we know from the security box that the long of the short of this problem is that the attack always starts with something an email a direct message with a link in one instance somebody sent me a direct message and said send me an email to this address and when I finally did they tried to get me to want to help them with millions of dollars i.e. the infamous 419 scam I told them this is a scam I'm not helping you. you know, well, I, do, I don't remember if I said that it, that it was a scam. I said, I can't help you. Uh, you know, I don't even know who you are. Uh, if you have this money, then, you know, you can do what you need with it. You don't need my help, basically. Uh, never heard from them again. But... These types of attacks are starting somewhere. And as we continue to deal with the ransomware problem that has plagued us since the COVID-19 pandemic, I keep thinking about this particular webinar where maybe we need to take a step back and we need to look at how an attack can get started. We know that ransomware just doesn't get on a computer. Malware just doesn't normally get on a computer it has to be triggered 
by something. And since the security box is packed with other material that is in the current day, what's going on now, and I have continued to think about this particular webinar that I attended probably in 2018 or 2019, I think it's time that I release it. I used to attend the monthly webinar series from Trend Micro by John Clay, but I haven't seen any new webinars Now this could have been a 2019 or a 2020 webinar. I don't exactly remember the date. But I hope that you enjoy the program even though it might be outdated. I'm sure that a lot of what John is talking about in the webinar is still present today. It has to be present today because that is the only way these types of things occur. And the problem is, is that we have not learned anything about how to protect ourselves unless we don't fall victim in the first place. I could go on and on about introducing this ordeal by reminding people that on podcast, I believe it was 44, I call her the staple of the security box because that's who named it. Actually, partially fell victim to try and pay Bitcoin for a purchase that was made through a well-known website. You can go back to Podcast 44 to learn more. So there are people that are still getting bit. I mean, the staple went out and looked for a phone number for Walmart and dialed a phone number that said it, you know, that it was Walmart. It was an 1832 phone number, which has been involved in a lot of scammy behavior. I kept telling her that that was not the way that this works. Every time she called, it was like, this is not how this works. Long story short, that ended up getting resolved and no money left. But they're trying to get her to pay in Bitcoin and trying to scam her out of money that she didn't have to pay. But she placed the call, but that doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is, is that there are very different ways 
of getting bit and maybe this anatomy of an attack could shed some light on what has happened in the past what's happening now and maybe it could teach some people what should be learned so enjoy the one hour webinar here's John Clay from Trend Micro hey everybody uh, thank you for joining me uh, my name is John Clay uh, director of global threat communications here at Trend Micro and welcome to my monthly threat webinar uh, this is February 2020, and I want to thank, really especially thank you guys for joining today because I've been attending RSA all week. In fact, I'm sitting in my hotel room right now, uh, and I want to thank you for getting me out of the off-the-show floor and able to share some time with you all here and, and talk about uh, about the, um, the topic today. Uh, before we get started, a couple housekeeping things. Uh, certainly, uh, I will be doing Q&A at the end of this. So if you have any questions, you should have a Q&A button on your um, console there, and you can enter a question at any time. I'll be happy to try and get through everybody's questions, uh, answer everybody's questions at the end. But if I don't, uh, as, as some of you know, I will reach out to you via email and work to answer and, uh, any and all of the questions that come in. Um, secondly, there is a resource button there. You can uh, click on that, and there's some resources that you can get access to. Um, we will be covering a number of things there. Uh, one thing I wanted to highlight is we published our 2019 secu annual security roundup report on Tuesday this week. Um, so if you haven't had a chance to take a look at that, feel free to go and download that off our website. Um, I will likely be covering that in the March uh, um, webinar, but uh, no, no, not confirmed yet, but uh, certainly uh, take a look at that if you want to hear and see what we saw in 2019. Um, this webinar is interesting because I've had a lot of, of my audience uh, ask me about doing case studies in the future. So I thought I would take uh, uh, one of these uh, months and, and cover a case study with you all. And so that's what we're going to do today. Um, it's uh, It'll be an interesting one. Uh, it is a bit old. I will caution you on that, but um, but it it still applies. A lot of what occurred back then still applies today, and I'm going to try and keep that in mind as we go through and talk about this case study. Um, kind of explain, you know, what happened then, but also kind of relay to what is still occurring today. You know, and I've been in this industry for many years, and and certainly um, we see the the tactics shift regularly and you'll see some of that in that annual report some of the tactics that have have shifted uh, like in the ransomware group but uh, but a lot of stuff stays the same and a lot of the because it, it works and it worked back then and it still works today so we are going to uh, dive into that now um, you know I, I put this in here the largest hack in history well at the time it was and there, I know certainly there's been some some hacks um, in uh, uh, more more recent hacks that are probably bigger, uh, but there's a lot to learn here, uh, and a lot of information uh, that we will that I'll try and share with you today that'll be interesting. Uh, it is the Saudi Aramco 
Um, so I wanted to highlight um, first and foremost, uh, you know, some some ideas around Sally Ranko. And, and before we get started, I do want to make make note of this. You know, uh, my intent here isn't to um, make light of them or or sh- share anything that they did incorrectly. You know, they they did what they had to do at the time just like anybody, and you all are familiar, if anybody's had to deal with a breach, um, you deal with what happens at the time. And, you know, maybe they made some good uh, uh, decisions, maybe some bad decisions, but, you know, at the time, that's that's what it is, and you, you learn from it. So, uh, but it, to give you some, some background on Saudi Aramco, if you're not real familiar with them, they, they have a market cap of almost $2 trillion. So we think about, think about the, the size of this organization, um, and the uh, the amount of money that they are bringing in, fifty thousand employees worldwide. So it is a, a worldwide organization, right? There's a lots of lots of uh, networks, lots of uh, applications, lots of things that are having to be dealt with from an IT perspective. And I know a lot of you who are on the calls on the webinar today have to deal with this type of network, and it's very difficult. Um, and as we'll see, these uh, the actors behind it were very determined. Uh, founded in 1933, so pretty old, produces 10% of the world's oil. Um, and so this is, uh, you know, certainly they, uh, uh, they are a very large organization dealing with lots and lots of of uh, issues and, and systems and, and so forth. Um, you know, they one thing that they had determined before they, uh, as they were building their networks and looking at it, um, they looked at their primary revenue generator, right? And that is the pumping and distribution of oil. So as an organization, you really do need to look at what is your primary uh, what is the primary goal of your organization, right? Um, and and as you look at your networks and thinking about your network, um, think about what would happen if something were to go wrong, if we were breached and we had to take down certain parts of the network. So they made a decision to effectively create two networks, right? They wanted to ensure that their primary revenue uh, was uh, would never be compromised, so they segregated the uh, uh, the pumping uh, oil pumping and distribution network. Um, they assumed, as they were thinking about, you know, which everybody should be doing, is thinking about how how and where will an attacker attack us. So if they were going to attack us, what would they be looking for? How would they do it? And, uh, and Saudi Aramco made an assumption that the attacks would focus on their key equipment and, and at their pumping and distribution of oil. Unfortunately, that that was an incorrect assumption, as we'll see as we as we go along here. Um, but they did make that separation. They they wanted to ensure that they had their their primary revenue uh, component protected as as well as possible they possibly could. And in this case, it actually was well protected, and the actors behind it didn't get access to that part of their network. So that was that was good. But unfortunately, they uh, they decided that you know maybe maybe um, hedge their bets too much on that, and didn't put as much focus on some of the other the other side of the of the uh, the network. So um, so interesting. Back in in mid 2012, um, there was an employee who received a email, and they clicked on a link in that email. How many of us are still dealing with? 
with employees out there that get an email and whether it's an, there has an, an attachment associated with it or a link, they open the attachment or they click on the link, right? Still applies. Email still is, is a key contributor to um, attacks today. Uh, in Texas, they actually had a sock in Texas and alerts started popping up about some unusual network activity. So they did get alerts. Um, their sock in Texas started looking into it a little bit, um, but at the time, uh, the uh, the activity dissipated, and so they didn't. They decided no further investigation was conducted. So think about this as a uh, from a the uh, criminal's perspective, the the attacker's perspective. They 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 used an, a socially engineered email. They got into a system, and then they very quickly just went dark. Right. So the the intent there was to just establish a beachhead, and then go dark very quickly so it looks like nothing happened, right? And they probably erased some of their tracks on those systems uh, so that IT would be able to uh, identify any unusual behavior at that point. Now, before we get started, I do want to do a brief interlude here um, and mention some things. This will come up as we talk a little bit further in, uh, at the end of the webinar. But in 2010, if everybody remembers, Iran's nuclear program was devastated by a virus. I think we all know that virus was Stuxnet, which was a collaboration between the U.S.'s uh, NSA and Unit 8200, which is a unit out of Israel. Um, they, they created Stuxnet and launched it and did some, some real damage to Iran's nuclear program. Uh, as you would expect, Iran wasn't very pleased with that and vowed some revenge. Okay, so that's our that's our interlude. I just want to keep that have you keep that in mind. Uh, let's get back to this. So, in 2012, Ramadan came, uh, which is a a big holiday in that in, in uh, the Middle East and that parts uh, that part of the world. Uh, so most of uh, Saudi Aramco was on holiday. So think about this again as you're as you're looking at your organization. Um, if, uh, you know, what would happen if something occurred while uh, most of your organization was off on holiday or um, you had, uh, you know, certain events going on where most of your employees are not going to be around. Um, remember this date and time stamp. So August 15th, 2012 at 9.08 a.m. Saudi time, a message appeared on Pastebin. Um, if anybody uh, is, is not familiar, Pastebin is a big uh, uh, website where people paste information, um, notices, uh, uh, stuff. Uh, and it was an explicit warning that in two hours an attack is going to commence on Saudi Aramco, which will devastate their operations. Uh, so I don't know if anybody here, some of you probably monitor Pastebin or monitor or do some open source intelligence gathering about, about your organization, your brand, seeing if it's mentioned in the underground and in, or in Pastebin for this, for example. Um, no one noticed, unfortunately, from Saudi Aramco. This is the actual Pastebin uh, message that came up. I know it might be a little blurry, but... Um, but uh, and I apologize for that. But a couple of things I wanted to highlight. First and foremost, Aramco is mentioned, as we stated just a minute ago. They mentioned that on August 15, 2012, at 11.08 a.m. Uh, Saudi time. So remember that, that timestamp from before. It was at 9.08 a.m., uh, so two hours later. 
They are saying they were going to destroy 30,000 computers. Um, one thing that's interesting, if you can you see the timestamp here, is August 15th. So it was a couple of, um, a, you know, a little bit after this uh, occurred. Um, we only had about 19,000 views. But again, even with 19,000 views, no one from the organization really noticed it. Uh, so at, on 8.15 at 11.08 a.m. Saudi time, across the company, a video started playing on servers and endpoints. And that video was a United States flag burning. Um, so think about this, uh, that uh, from the time, the initial infection that they saw and they sort of um, and, and didn't think about uh, what occurred there, to now, all of a sudden, you have 30,000 computers that have a video installed on it and are running a video on it, uh, not just servers and endpoints. Whilst that was happening, they were wiping the, overriding the master boot records of all of these systems. Again, it was, uh, there was distraction with the video. In the background of the, uh, on the system, they were wiping all of the MBRs so that those systems were effectively destroyed, right? So now, None of those systems were able to be uh, uh, booted up, uh, couldn't do anything with it. Uh, additional attacks were hitting their company at time, again, so doing some distraction. Uh, one of the things that we have noticed in, with the uh, uh, threat actors today is in a lot of cases, they, they do some things. They may throw some, some ransomware in there, but that's a distraction from something else that they're doing. So, again, think about this as if you do get attacked at some point, um, make sure you don't forget to look around at other places because there could be, they could be using one attack to uh, masquerade or, or hide uh, a, a, an attack at different areas of your, of your network. So they made a, a decision that they were going to cut off all of their Internet access globally. So Saudi Aramco just made that decision because all these systems were done um, and they were still getting attacked uh, at that time. They, they saw reinfections and so forth. Um, they'd made that decision. We're going to cut us off from the Internet so no one can access us from the outside. Uh, so nothing left but the oil production. And But again, the good news for Saudi Aramco is because of that heightened security and that segmentation, they, the oil kept flowing. Uh, they were able to continue to deliver, although they were having some challenges with their um, uh, their delivery. There were trucks backing up at their oil um, uh, facilities uh, because, again, the back-end systems that managed a lot of those things were, were offline. Um, but they did have oil still pumping. They were still able to deliver oil. Although at this time also they were they were having some challenges in paying, uh, getting customers to pay, but they wanted to make sure that oil still kept going, so they were effectively giving the oil away at that point. Um, the fastest method to recover, they made it again. Here's another decision point: How do we get all of these 35,000 systems back online? So they made the decision that instead of going and and maybe uh, doing a re-image, they're just going to replace the hard disks. So that's what they ended up doing. They replaced hard disk on uh, every system in their organization. The challenge that they had at this time, and there were there weren't enough hard disks in supply, uh, so they bought up the entire future production run for the month of September uh, to ensure they got they were they were able to obtain all of these uh, 
these hard disk drives. They did the same thing in October, November, December, and January because there just wasn't enough supply. I don't know if anybody remembers back then, back into the end of 2012, um, there was a, a uh, difficulty in obtaining hard drives, as you can imagine here. Uh, so if you were trying to obtain hard drives for your systems, you at that time, you probably had trouble obtaining them. Uh, there was a news story out that said it was due to a uh, weather incident happening in Southeast Asia. But the actual thing that was that Saudi Aramco was buying all of these hard drives up uh, on the global market. So the other thing that they had to do is uh, logistics became an, a, a challenge for them. So they uh, incorporated their corporate jet fleet. Um, so they started flying their IT personnel over to Southeast Asia, picking up all of these hard drives in their jets and flying them to all of their facilities around the world and having these people go in and, uh, and replace the hard drives in all of these systems. Um, they also, because of their, they had disruptions on a lot of their um, business, they started to use analog fax machines to put through information, uh, communicate with, with other groups, uh, again, some of the challenges they had there is they didn't really have faxes, not too many faxes, so they had to go purchase a whole bunch. A lot of the IT personnel uh, weren't real familiar with the use of faxes, so again, some logistics challenges that that, that happened. Um, uh, and the constant cycle kind of began there. Uh, Aramco was offline for the better part of five months. How many of you could be offline, fully offline the Internet for five months and continue to run as an organization and, in fact, continue to, to generate revenue? Uh, probably not a lot of us. So um, the fortunate thing for Saudi Aramco is they did have uh, the, the, the capability and the means to, to do a lot of these um, pretty extraordinary resource uh, support like a corporate fleet of jets, like being offline for five months and still able to uh, run their business somewhat um, effectively and continue to have money and income flow into them. So let's talk a little bit about from the ashes here. Uh, the attacks on these Middle Eastern companies all followed kind of a similar pattern. This is where I kind of tie it back to, if you think about the attacks that are happening today, um, uh, eerily similar to what we see. So first thing, the attacker sent a spear phish email to employees at the target organization. That email contained a Microsoft Office document as an attachment. Um, we still utilize Microsoft Office uh, quite a bit, I think, in most organizations. You probably are not uh, um, limiting or, or dropping any of those attachments. You're still allowing your employees to receive them. Uh, opening an attachment invoked a PowerShell that enables command line access to the compromised machine. So the actors behind this were able to take advantage of that, um, utilize that PowerShell to give them access. So now they could communicate with that compromised machine and remotely execute commands on it. So they were able to deploy the additional tools and malware uh, to all of those other endpoints, escalate privileges on the, in the network. Um, this is, again, how they were able to stay under the radar and deploy a video um, uh, file and um, um, the master boot record wiper malware on all of these systems uh, 
as they after they had uh, initially infected the organization. Um, they were connecting to additional systems, locating critical servers, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that and that's in fact what we are seeing pretty regularly today, especially with the ransomware actors. If you think about where ransomware actors are today, uh, they are they are using they're still using email to go after an employee, but they aren't looking to infect that employee's system. They are only using that as a beachhead into the organization. They will immediately then laterally move across the organization, uh, looking for those business critical systems that they can deploy ransomware on. Uh, and get those systems unusable, um, and which then allows them to potentially obtain a ransom and actually increase their ransom uh, demands on those organizations because those are critical systems that are running a lot of those businesses. So, we uh, again, you know, what is what is old is new. Uh, the logic bomb triggered, systems were destroyed. So that's one of the differences here, though, is that. In a lot of cases, like with ransomware, they're really looking just to extort. There isn't really isn't isn't uh, too much um, dis- destructive uh, uh, implementation there. Um, they they still allow you to get your systems back, uh, but in this case, they were really looking to destroy. Uh, so the uh, the motive here was to destroy those systems and uh, and really bring down the organization. Uh, I mentioned the uh, the Stuxnet in Iran. So if you if you've looked and seen who the uh, perpetrators of this, uh, right now it is pointing to the Iranian actor group APT33. They've been in the news recently. Um, this is a group out of Iran, uh, and as we as I mentioned earlier in that interlude, Iran did uh, say they were going to take some revenge, and in this case, they took some revenge using Saudi Aramco. Now, obviously, Saudi Aramco is not Israeli or uh, uh, American, but they do supply oil, and they are supportive. And as we saw, you know, we had the video of the United States flag burning, so there was some some uh, link back to the United States there. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about about this again. Um, the motive, right? The motive was to destroy their network, uh, which is a little different from most of what we see today. Most of what we see are, are um, cyber criminals, uh, financially driven individuals. Um, so depending on what your organization does, the likelihood of a destructive attack is, is uh, maybe low or it could be high. It really depends on how much you have. If you're a government network or your uh, critical infrastructure or something, there could be a destructive angle. But again, as an organization, you should think about that. What is your risk? Um, think about who could target you. What what kind of attacks could they target you with? And the beauty about um, and what we're starting to see, uh, so like with APT33, um, we've done some some work in looking at them. Uh, that right now they you know they use some open VPN stuff to get into the organ into organizations. They do use they use botnets. Um, they do reconnaissance on on uh, uh, oil and military targets, so they've been known to target oil and gas. Um, they they utilize email, uh, reading hacker blogs and forums. We've we've seen reference to them as well. Here's an example of some of the stuff that they do with their uh, in order to get into an organization, a high high value uh, target. So botnets, uh, uh, backend CNCs um, on, on shared web servers, et cetera, et cetera. 
So I did want to highlight um, the good news for you uh, practitioners is um, MITRE, the MITRE attack mapping has been done. Um, in fact, this comes out of our uh, uh, 2019 annual report. We actually did a, a little section on APT 33. Uh, so I did want to highlight some of the um, uh, mappings that uh, that are on the MITRE attack framework. So if you wanted to go to MITRE, you could see these. Um, and it's always good good because they have mapped a number of these uh, actor groups. So if you are familiar with uh, or you think you're being attacked by APT33, you can go to the MITRE framework and look at all the different things to help look at. So then it gives you some ideas of where you need to look at inside your organization to maybe threat hunt, uh, as well as potentially add some um, protection capabilities. So in the initial access, uh, as we saw here, they're known to use spear phishing uh, links and valid accounts. So again, one of the, the primary goals of, an, of a uh, threat actor today, once they are inside an organization, is to do some credentials theft. Um, looking for those valid accounts that they can compromise and then become that account and utilize that account to laterally move, to get access to systems or, or data that they wouldn't uh, normally get access to. On the execution side, um, exploitation for uh, client execution, so attempting to exploit a known vulnerability. In this case, uh, they've been known to use CVE 2018-2250. Um, they utilize PowerShell, as we saw earlier. Um, use PowerShell to download files from a command and control server to run various scripts. Uh, user execution lured users to click links, uh, malicious HTML applications uh, delivered via spear phishing. Um, uh, persistence, uh, they deploy several malware variants using both registry run keys and startup folder victims. Uh, so uh, as part of their persistence, uh, privilege escalation, scheduled ta uh, tasks. So again, you know, you think back about they, they, they dropped a logic bomb, which basically uh, stayed um, dormant for a number of, of uh, days, weeks, and then uh, had, a, had a time bomb associated with it. So it, it all kicked off at that 11.08 uh, a.m. Saudi time. Uh, so again, you know, one of the, the tactics used by a lot of these people to stay under, under um, the radar is to plan a logic bomb that, that then kicks off at a certain, at a specific time. So it doesn't do anything, just sits on that computer, but at that time and date, uh, all of a sudden it will execute. Uh, defense evasion, so execution guardrails used kill dates in their malware to guard uh, guardrail execution. Obfuscated files or information used base64 to encode uh, payloads. Um, credential access, they used brute force, uh, used password spraying to gain access to target systems. So again, if you think about um, one of the things that we saw in 2019 was a big uh, surge in RDP brute force attacks. Telnet uh, login attacks. Uh, so brute force is a big one uh, that they use. Uh, password spraying attacks uh, are utilized quite often. So again, you know, one of the things that we definitely recommend is two-factor authentication into all of your administrator accounts and, and many of your critical accounts uh, to help that. Credential dumping they utilized as well. Uh, you can see a number of the tools that they were using, which uh, you, you may use inside your organization, Mimikatz, uh, Lasagna, um, SniffPass, et cetera. Uh, discovery, network sniffing. Use SniffPass to collect credentials by sniffing network traffic. 
uh, remote file copy on lateral movement, so downloading additional files and servers from the command and control server. Uh, command and control itself, they use these different, you can see the different ports, so hopefully you're monitoring some of these ports. Uh, 443 for command and control, for 808 and 880 are some of the uncommonly used ports that they've we've seen them utilize. Uh, they use HTTP for command and control, Base64 to encode command and control traffic, uh, AES for encryption of, of the traffic, etc. So all of those are used. And the exfiltration piece, in this case, they didn't necessarily exfiltrate. They simply uh, planted a, uh, a master boot record wiper because, again, they were looking for destruction. They weren't looking to steal information. They weren't looking to uh, steal data. It was more of a destructive attack in this case. But if they were, and they've been known to, to do that as well, um, used WinRAR to compress data prior to ex uh, exfiltration, used FTP to exfiltrate files. Are you scanning FTP traffic? Are you scanning that information separately from that separate from this command and control channel? Um, so all of those these tactics are are utilized. So again, this is this, that comes from the MITRE attack framework um, where they mapped. We've mapped some of those things, but uh, certainly feel free. And again, I would utilize the MITRE attack framework as much as possible. Uh, they do have a number of the um, uh, actor groups uh, linked already and tied into that. So it's a good resource for you. Let's talk a little bit about lessons learned now. Um, security teams need visibility, right? This is one of the challenges, right? Their SOC did have some visibility into the initial infection, uh, but unfortunately because they, the actors behind it were pretty sophisticated and they decided to just go dormant very quickly, uh, it was more of a blip, right? They didn't see any further activity for a while, so it was um, unfortunately it was it was ignored at that point. Uh, but certainly, as, as uh, organizations like yourselves need better visibility into what is happening, um, why we're seeing a big uptick in, in EDR and XDR uh, today, because you want to have that uh, information logged uh, that you can go back to and, and try and scan. You can correlate some of the attacks. Uh, uh, the, uh, from, from the endpoint to the servers to the data centers, et cetera. All of that is, is uh, good practices. I mentioned email, and I, I wanted to highlight email still as the leading point of entry into corporate networks. So in 2019, if you look at this uh, chart on the right, this is all of the detections we had from our customer base. Um, so, you know, we have 500,000 commercial customers, millions of consumers around the world. Uh, and we look at all of the detections that were um, uh, identified in 2019, you can see 91% are email-based. So we still see a massive amount of email. So what I wanted to highlight here is just to reiterate, if you haven't looked at your email security uh, posture recently, you might want to take a look. Uh, talk to your vendor. Identify some of the gaps that they that there may be. Um, uh, maybe look at additional controls as you're doing it, uh, sandboxing, artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, things like that can come into play. Uh, so I would talk to your vendor and see if there's something you're missing that might be able to help you and, uh, improve. Because, again, if 90-plus percent of the attacks on our customers are coming via email, very critical to look at how can we prevent those that attack. And again, if I can block it at the email layer, 
it's not getting to the endpoint. It's not being opened on the endpoint, et cetera. If I can filter it out at the gateway, filter out in the cloud. If you're Office 365, for example, use our API capability with Cloud App Security where we can, we can block it. We can do additional controls outside of what Microsoft has put in place. So um, think about that as, uh, as a, uh, for your 2020 plans. Uh, prioritization of assets. Uh, Directly identifying which assets are a priority. So again, you know, unfortunately here, right, they they prioritize their um, uh, pumping and, and oil production systems and, and networks more so than they did their back end. So as an organization, you definitely need to think about that. Um, what are the critical systems that? And if those critical systems were compromised, what could that do? How can I re, how can I get back? Uh, what's your um, uh, incident response plan, what's your recovery plan? Uh, make sure you have those in place uh, and you've done tests and you've practiced them, et cetera. Um, as we've always said, layering is your is your is probably your strongest bet. Um, so thinking about uh, adding security controls at the in the clouds, so if you're using uh, public cloud, private cloud, hybrid cloud, doesn't matter. Make sure those cloud systems are protected. Um, your gateway, especially your email gateway, but web is critical too. And a lot of those emails that we talk about are links to malicious servers that download malware. So make sure your web layer and your email gateways are, are robust. Um, your network layer, you've got scanning of the network traffic. Um, that can help you identify command and controls. It can help you find lateral movement. Um, your servers, and I would I would say your servers are different from your endpoints, uh, especially servers at the data center, because that's uh, some of those business critical systems are going to be your servers. So thinking about that a little differently than you are maybe your endpoint, uh, but then endpoints for sure, um, including mobile, including IoT, industrial IoT, et cetera. But then, as and what I like to um, highlight also is besides making sure you're covering all those layers. Also within each of those layers, make sure you have multiple security controls, multiple technologies that can be um, implemented there to identify threats because machine learning isn't, isn't the be on and end all of, of uh, identifying malware. Um, it misses stuff. So make sure you have another, uh, uh, other controls. For example, if we look at our, our file scanning uh, detections last year, 80% were detected through signatures. Only 20% had to be detected through more advanced uh, technologies like behavior monitoring and, and machine learning. So signatures still do have a place and still do work. Uh, there are, again, numerous opportunities to, to block an attack, um, as I just mentioned. Uh, and then if all else fails, you can try to possess those, uh, those resources of the most valuable company out there um, so you could invest in a fleet of jets. You can invest in in numerous uh, resources to be able to buy up the world's supply of hard drives. That can help as well. But most of you, unfortunately, I don't think have that capability. I know we don't have that capability. So, um, but again, you know, thinking about your security, thinking about your your current um, uh, plan of action. Um, looking at it, making sure you're shoring it up. You know, one of the things that we have seen recently with um, some organizations that have gotten infected, uh, a couple of key things. One, they, they, they found assets that did not have security controls around them. So um, 
uh, asset discovery. Identify those all of the all the systems, all the devices in your organization, especially internet facing ones. Make sure those have the security controls associated with them. So, uh, one of the the top ways they're getting infected is because the systems just aren't running controls. So make sure you look and, and do that asset discovery. Number two is um, the system may have an outdated uh, security um, uh, version uh, and, and or it isn't patched properly. So thinking about uh, making sure you're running the latest and greatest software versions from your security vendor, uh, ensuring that you're applying those security patches when they come out, um, but also making sure you know your um, your patches for your operating systems and your applications is is also there. Uh, look into virtual patching if you need to. And then last and but but not least, um, especially for ransomware, we find uh, they aren't running the latest uh, advanced detection capabilities. So they haven't enabled uh, machine learning. They haven't enabled artificial intelligence. They haven't even enabled behavior monitoring. Uh, which is very effective at detecting ransomware today and some of the other uh, malware that we are seeing. So, um, so think about that. Think about um, looking into the possibility of, of uh, maybe doing some auditing, maybe doing looking at best practices, and we have a number of those that we can help you with if you need to. Um, just some information about Tremicro. You know, I'm kind of proud that we've got 32 years in this business. I'll be 24 years in July in this business, working for all all 24 with Trendmicro. Um, so very uh, uh, stable organization. Uh, again, I mentioned our customer size, and, and we cross all of these. So I'm sure we have consumers on my call on the webinar here. I'm sure we have small business, medium business, enterprise level, government networks. We cover. We can help cover all of those as well. So if you do want to talk to us, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to uh, talk to you about what we capabilities we can have to help protect you against these types of attacks that we went through today. Um, so with that, I do want to open it up to questions now. And let's see, looks like we have a few of them. Uh, question here: What is the what is company best practice in matter of business continuity to allow continuing running during an attack? <laughs> during attack? Yeah, that's a good question because obviously, as we saw here, they cut themselves off the internet. Um, I think you know it's gonna it's gonna depend on your your situation. Everybody's gonna be a little bit different. A lot of it depends on what has been attacked. If it's your business critical system, so for example, uh, we've seen a lot of state and local governments attacked where they're uh, their servers and their systems where their citizens have access to are un, unavailable now. So people can't get access to DMV. They can't get access to some of the information that they need. Um, that's going to be a challenge for uh, for a lot of organizations. Um, obviously, backup. Uh, obviously, you have uh, redundancy hopefully in place where you can you could switch over to a, um, a network that is uh, is unaffected. Uh, but again, everything's going to be dependent upon your organization and how you do it. And that's where potentially looking at segmentation, micro-segmentation could help as well um, because you only allow them if they get into one, one area, they're isolated and aren't affecting the rest of your organization. So um, good question, though. Uh, Oh, somebody's just uh, uh, mentioning our our um, uh, our cloud uh, um, one of our cloud uh, emails uh, 
server options um, solutions can be configured as a pre-filter to feed Office 365 accounts. They say it works extremely well. So, but definitely take a look if you're looking at, at uh, email, talk to us. We'd love to um, chat with you about that. Are there any international plans to deal with the root of ransomware, which is anonymous transfer of funds via Bitcoin, for example? Um, I have not heard of any international like laws or anything being put in place. Certainly um, uh, global law enforcement, like Interpol, works with a lot of the regional um, law enforcement agencies to try and do that. Unfortunately, as we all know, Bitcoin and some of the cryptocurrencies uh, uh, are used because they work and they are anonymous. So um, it can be uh, difficult, uh, but it's not impossible. It, a lot of it depends on the craftiness of the, of the individuals or the group that are, um, that are doing it. Uh, how good they are. A lot of times they make mistakes, and that's what we hope for in a lot of cases and, and where uh, law enforcement can really take advantage of. I would say, though, that you know, it, for organizations, if you do get infected with ransomware, please do get law enforcement involved because the best way and the only way we're going to get rid of ransomware is either, A, we all stop paying the ransom, or B, we get the ransomware actors off the grid. And so and the really the only way to get them off the grid is, is hopefully with uh, law enforcement arresting them. So, um, but again, I haven't seen a whole lot. There are some some organizations like, uh, you know, we belong to the Cybersecurity Tech Accord, and that's a, a consortium of of 150 plus organizations around the world, uh, not just security vendors, but all all uh, walks of life. Uh, all different industries, and we're trying to do some things around uh, working with with governments to help in that in that matter. Uh, somebody asked, "What's the acronym SOC?" And I apologize if I use acronyms. I know this uh, security field is is ripe with acronyms. SOC is Security um, um, Operations uh, Center. Security Operations Center in this in this context. Is my data any safer if it is in the Microsoft Cloud, like Office 365? Well, I, I mean, certainly uh, Microsoft is putting in a lot of security controls around their Office 365. Um, uh, so hopefully some of your data is safe there. But again, uh, the actors are very good at getting access, especially if they if they uh, brute force a, uh, your uh, administrative account or your uh, your um, account credentials. Then effectively they are logging in as you. So no, your your data would not be safe if they were able to steal your uh, account information. Um, one other thing is like with with email, and I mentioned the email stuff, the messaging layer. Um, we do protect a lot of our customers with our our cloud app security. That's an API for Office 365. So and we do see a number of of threats getting through the Microsoft initial Microsoft uh, filters. Uh, and then we detect it. So we've seen millions of those threats get through with customers running that stuff. So uh, again, an extra layer of defense is usually not a bad thing, um, and it can it may be a good investment to look at. Uh, somebody asked about if the endpoints in the attack had end users running with local admin privileges or as standard users. Unfortunately, I don't know the answer to that. So if anybody does know, uh, feel free to offer that up um, that I can do it. I, I'll see if I can't look into that 
and find out, but uh, I'm not sure if they they have disclosed that as part of their um, breach information. Someone asked if Trend Micro offers managed services if someone wanted to outsource network security. So we do have a managed XDR, which is, uh, think of it as like a managed EDR on steroids. Um, so we can um, support an organization that wants us to manage uh, the threat hunting aspect. Uh, we will we will look at the logs, we will analyze, we will look at the alerts, and and then and then obviously give you information if we find something. So if you want to talk to us, uh, feel free to give uh, sales a call and talk about our managed XDR uh, offering there. Are they using vulnerabilities from uh, older versions of Microsoft, like 2003, 2008, for example? Um, so in the vulnerability space, we definitely see uh, uh, vulnerability exploits being developed that are backward compatible. Um, so not only are they supporting uh, Windows 10, they may support Windows 2008, um, Windows XP, for example, like WannaCry affected Windows XP systems. Uh, and we saw that when a lot of the embedded XP type of, of systems got infected with WannaCry and were displaying the WannaCry ransom note on them. Uh, and so uh, the the criminals do, in most cases, try to be backwards compatible. The challenge, obviously, for organizations are if you are still running a lot of those systems uh, and you have to for some reasons, maybe some of your your applications are only are only supported on some of those older operating systems that Microsoft doesn't support. Um, it's a challenge because you will not receive security updates. Uh, the, the, the best scenario there is to look into um, network IPS or host-based IPS, uh, where we will provide a virtual patch uh, supporting those older operating systems still. Uh, so if, a, if, if an exploit tries to uh, target those systems, we can block it with an uh, IPS filter. Uh, and we uh, provide those on a regular basis. If you're familiar with our zero-day initiative, um, it's a bug bounty program. Whenever we, we receive a bug on a Microsoft vulnerability, we do look at backwards compatibility. Our Toronto vulnerability research team, that's, the, that's what they do regularly, is they will, um, they will go and analyze the vulnerability and look for all the different ways that it could be exploited, and they will develop filters for those, those exploits, whether it, regardless of whether it's a new uh, operating system or an older operating system. How big of a risk is it to have some Windows 7 or even WinXP still in, in, the, in the company network? Again, I think that the big thing there is you need to ensure you have security controls around it. Um, uh, if they can still run a security agent, great. Uh, if they can't, that's where, uh, just as I just mentioned, network IPS can be very effective because it can identify something coming over the network layer. Uh, targeting that that system, but um, certainly uh, it is going to be a challenge, especially for patching, uh, because a lot of those uh, those operating systems just are no longer being supported by Microsoft. So, um, but again, we can potentially uh, you might want to talk to us about uh, virtual patching for those systems.
Uh, somebody's asking about coverage for our um, IPS, so I would recommend giving our support a call. Um, they can give you some more information, uh, or your sales rep um, and sales engineer can give you some information about all of the stuff that we can support. What's your view of the cyber risk of enterprise IT and OT data integration analytics? Um, so, yeah, certainly we're seeing that convergence of IT and OT today um, uh, as organizations are looking to improve their ability for visibility and, and, and uh, support of those different networks. Uh, I would definitely say segmentation as much as possible, but, um, but certainly, you know, OT needs to start working with IT and IT needs to start working with OT to ensure uh, that those systems are protected and covered. Um, they have security controls around them. On the OT front, uh, just FYI, we have a, uh, a new um, organization called TX1, and we've been um, just now announcing some new capabilities in that, in that area uh, to protect um, OT devices. And so if you want to talk to us about that, we'd love to chat. Uh, it's a pretty good uh, application and, and uh, protection capabilities. How can we protect backup information and data from being affected as well during an attack? Well, we, we usually recommend a, a three to one a backup process where at least one of those backups is a offline backup, so it is taken totally offline and can't be affected. Uh, so if as long as you support that, um, we do know that a lot of the ransomware actors today are targeting uh, network backup devices, um, backup uh, uh, drives, uh, and infecting those and encrypting those as well. So uh, one of the challenges for a lot of organizations, they don't realize that, and so they don't pr uh, build a, offline, a fully offline backup model. And so that can, um, that can be a challenge for an organization who does get infected. What is the best practice for people who bring in USB drives? Uh, what is the best way to encrypt not only these drives but endpoint hard drives as well? I think if you looked at your um, security vendor, uh, your endpoint security vendor, a lot of them now have capabilities into uh, supporting USB uh, and how to manage those USB drives. Uh, in some cases, it's not allowing USB. Uh, to activate or at least not doing auto uh, running of the of the content on a USB drive. Uh, some of them will sc automatically scan the USB drive before allowing it to um, to get access to the system. So I would say just talk to your endpoint uh, vendor and see if there's something they can do. Uh, does Trend Micro offer best practice documents for configuring email or some of the other uh, technologies? And yes, we do. Uh, I would say um, check out our support portal. I think you can find best practice documentation there. If you can't, then I definitely just recommend giving a call to us, uh, giving a support a call. We'd be happy to help you and, and, and identify those and, and send you that information. Uh, and I definitely uh, recommend that for organizations because, again, if you uh, find out that maybe you aren't running some of the latest features that you should be running um, uh, to detect a lot of the newer malware, newer tech, uh, newer threats, uh, we can definitely help you ensure that you are uh, fully protected. 
people are asking about um, changes to our email security software. So we have we have introduced some new products, and we are um, getting rid of some of the older version, older email products. So again, I would definitely recommend. I'm not the expert on all of the product stuff, so I would recommend giving a call to your sales rep. We'd love to come in or have a conversation with you about roadmaps and what is available today versus um, uh, tomorrow. Looking through here, I know we have a few more minutes here. I appreciate all the all the uh, questions that are coming in. Hopefully, I get to through all of these. So, somebody just mentioned cloud hosting paints a larger target on your data, and you still need to account for backup of the data in the cloud. Cloud hosting offers redundancy, but rarely backup in case of accidental deletion of ransomware. So right, um, uh, thanks for that information. So I definitely, if you are doing cloud, going to the cloud, I recommend you look at the shared responsibility model. Uh, talk to your cloud vendor to see what they cover, what they don't cover, what security controls that they don't, uh, they may not offer, and then how you can um, potentially uh, improve those uh, on the backup side for sure as well. So uh, if you're doing a lot more of that, um, our cloud one offering, we are, we are, uh, we have a number of ways that we can help improve uh, and, and protect the different areas of your cloud. So recommend you give us a call on that as well. Uh, does Trend Micro have a CASB, Cloud Access Security Broker Solution? Um, not at this time. Um, it's something we have not uh, looked at investing in at this point. We do have a number of cloud offerings uh, as part of our Cloud One, our new Cloud One thing. Um, so we do a lot of stuff that potentially um, can still help. Uh, may not be uh, formally a CASB, but there's a lot of uh, technologies and a lot of um, uh, solutions that are part of a CASB type of solution. What's the best way to analyze phish emails being sent from the providers such as ProtonMail? Uh, again, I would make sure you have some automated security controls in your in your messaging layer, um, and that uh, and if you, for example, if that's not going through any of your gateway controls, then make sure your endpoints potentially have a way to uh, to scan uh, that email. Or worst case, if the if you allow your end users to receive Proton Mail, for example, um, you do have the security controls that are scanning any attachments and are scanning any of the URLs that may be accessed by uh, the user clicking on or or clicking on the link or opening the attachment. Somebody said, doesn't Trend recommend turning off Microsoft's uh, uh, security controls in, in email, uh, like on Office 365? Uh, no, I, we, we, don't, we don't recommend you turn off Microsoft. We think they have good pre-filters. We, we look at them as a pre-filter. Um, and they do a very good job of rooting out uh, a lot of the spam. Uh, but um, they do uh, they don't detect everything as we have seen with a lot of our customers so again we do recommend that uh, cloud app security be deployed and enable uh, some of our security controls as a secondary scan of emails coming into or out of your organization um, and as I mentioned before we are finding quite a few of 
threats that have been uh, able to get through the Microsoft security controls. So again, it's just an additional layer. I mentioned that before, layering your security, whether it's um, layering from the cloud down to your endpoints or layering within each of those. So like within email, using multiple uh, layers of protection can definitely help. Um, somebody asked what SDR stands for. I'm not really sure what SDR. I don't remember saying anything about SDR. Um, XDR for sure, that's uh, that's EDR uh, with additional controls around uh, messaging and, and network layer and cloud and uh, data center, et cetera. Uh, sorry, I, I apologize. I don't know what where I reference SDR. Um, how important is web reputation? So again, I um, you think about you think about the threats today. Um, number one, if it's a link in an email, it's the the malware is going to come from the web somewhere. They're going to be they're going to either redirect you from a legitimate uh, a web server to one of their web servers to download uh, a piece of malware. So if you're scanning your your HTTP HTTPS traffic. Uh, we potentially can detect that. Uh, command and control in a lot of cases is HTTP-based or HTTPS-based, and so you can detect command and control through web reputation as well. So I highly recommend you look at some enabling web reputation. I think that additional control, uh, additional layer will uh, allow you to um, mitigate a number of threats that could come into your organization. I'm not uh, I'm not familiar with how good BitLocker is compared to other encryption products, so I would recommend uh, maybe um, doing some due diligence there. I apologize, I just don't have the the uh, information on that. Um, someone's asking about the, uh, the backup. Can you speak to the number of instances where restoring from backup failed because the ransomware had been in the system for a length of time? How common is that? Um, well, the, the, the good news is with ransomware, it's a pretty visible threat, right? You're going to get that, um, that pop-up screen asking for a ransom pretty quickly once the systems are uh, uh, encrypted. So I don't think you're going to have a challenge with um, uh, not having having an old backup still infected with ransomware because it is such a very visible attack uh, threat. Um, maybe there could be some other malware types, uh, logic bombs, et cetera, like we talked about today, where those could be inside a backup as well. So obviously one of the things you need to look at doing is um, once you identify a threat, uh, doing a scan of your backups to ensure that that threat is no is not uh, present uh, can help. So, uh, what is the best practice for training uh, for phishing email detection? So that's a very good question because uh, we do offer something called phishinsight.trendmicro.com. If you go to phishinsight.trendmicro.com, that's a uh, free service that we offer um, people, and where you as a uh, 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 practitioner can develop um, phishing emails and test your your end users on them clicking a link or clicking an attachment or opening the the uh, phishing email, and you can help them with training them to uh, to identify uh, that 
those types of phishing emails and stuff. And as you 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 know, you probably see the phishing types that your organization is receiving. So you can kind of customize those emails to what is affecting you, uh, what types you're seeing in your within your organization. So feel free to do that. I do recommend that. I think we have seen we definitely seen a improvement in in um, employees not clicking phishing uh, uh, in phishing emails because they do recognize them now. Does Termicro provide DNS type protection services similar to Cisco's umbrella? Uh, and no, I don't. Uh, I don't believe we do at this time. I think that's all of the questions that we have so far. Um, let me see here. Just to go through. Uh, somebody asked about zero trust. So you know, zero trust is a is a uh, um, something that has been out there for quite some time. Um, there is a blog on our website about zero trust. Uh, it's it's uh, essentially what it says is that you don't trust anything on your network, um, and you verify stuff on your network. So, um, but there's a number of, of uh, websites and and blogs that talk about zero trust. Uh, maybe I'll do a webinar in a, in the future about zero trust, but um, uh, it's probably uh, I don't have time today to really get into all of the stuff on zero trust. So I apologize because I know we are at the top of the hour. Um, so I do want to thank everybody for taking the time out of your day. Again, thank you for getting me off uh, RSA's uh, show floor uh, and doing this. I hope this was helpful for you all. Um, again, I will be announcing uh, March's uh, webinar here in the next uh, week or so. Uh, but uh, thank you very much for attending here. You will receive a copy of the slides, um, and you will also receive a link to uh, the recorded version of this. So if you have colleagues that you that weren't able to attend and may want to, you feel free to share that link with them. So again, thanks, everybody. Have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Let's give out some contact information for this podcast and give this podcast a name Anatomy of an Attack My contact information is as follows Email and iMessage tech that's T-E-C-H at M-E-N-V-I dot O-R-G text or WhatsApp 804-442-6975 Something new which I'm going to introduce to the podcast you can dial and leave voicemail. It connects to Livewire, and the phone number is 602-887-5198. It's going to give you my name intro, and it's going to uh, give you a mailbox number. That's for identification of where it's going. And you press the button to leave a voicemail and follow the prompts. Now, you do actually have to send the message or I won't get it. It comes to me directly by email and it also goes to my mailbox. If you want to call back, you have to give me a phone number because there isn't a phone number given to me. That's the way I like it. Uh, this isn't a standard telephone call where everybody's phone number is just blasted all over the place. Great care has been made to allow people privacy.
so please use it with care and if you want your comments aired you let me know if you don't I'll listen to them and delete them and I hope that I can get more tech podcasts out there were things with the uh, facial recognition that I was listening to that I wanted to do with this podcast that I was listening to you know part of one and then I wanted to do it and then I got involved in other stuff and so the podcast isn't going anywhere but has been has become very infrequent but I have a hunch that might change so uh again email imessage tech t-e-c-h at m-e-n-v-i dot o-r-g text or whatsapp 804-442-6975 you can also call the comment line the voicemail line 602-887-5198 i'll see you all on another edition of the podcast i am jared reimer thanks for listening